Welcome to the show, folks. I'm David Hansen. It's Friday, Interview Friday. Today we have an interview that Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall did with energy legend T. Boone Pickens. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Hey, fools out there. It's uh, Jason Hall here, and uh, the gentleman to my left doesn't need that much introduction. It's uh, T. Boone Pickens. Boone, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with us today. You bet, Jason. It's, uh, it's uh, a, a rare opportunity to, to tap into your mind when it comes to somebody that has a legacy and experience and, and really the, the vision that you've had in terms of, of energy. And, um, well, I've been there for the whole show. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. about. Um, one, one of the things that, that, um, that I think is really interesting, if you look at, if you look at your history, um, you, you've typically nailed it when it comes to knowing how things are going to play out. Um, with not just oil and gas, but you know, over the past decade, with your um, with your um, proponency of uh, alternatives like wind and and that sort of thing. So I, I'd love to to hear your thoughts a little bit on that. Going back to you know when you first got into the oil business, kind of going on through the the more recent times. Well, you know, when I first got into the oil business, <clears throat> I was 16 when I roughnecked on on Earl Evans' uh, rotary rig and. Hughes County, Oklahoma. So that was my first introduction. Worked as a swamper the next summer and uh, then went to Oklahoma State, got my geology degree, went forward from there, and I've been in the business ever since. So, you know, I got out of school in 51, and, you know, that's over 60 years. Yeah, and. Uh... You know, I saw my first frack job uh, 35 miles west of where we're sitting in 1952. So that the new that new technology hydraulic fracturing. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because the president of the United States, I've heard him say that fracking was developed by the Energy Department of Energy, mm -hmm. their research, 30 years ago. Okay, well it was 62 years ago I saw that first frac job. Right. I, I don't know where in the hell everybody else was, but I know where <laughs> I was. So. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. The only I think the, the biggest thing that's happened in recent times is they've they've just been able to refine that technology, but it's not nothing that's really specifically brand new. No, yeah. I mean you were doing exactly the same thing. You right. were you're getting your pump pressure up and your injection volumes. You were trying to raise those. I saw where we got 50 barrels a minute into the formation, which that was a huge deal, lots mm -hmm. of power mm -hmm. and everything. Well, what are you doing now? You're doing the same thing, only you're getting more right. fluid in per minute and more sand. Mm -hmm. And, and a, lot of, a lot of that is just because of the, the technical capabilities with newer, newer equipment, newer capabilities, right? That's it is, and I'm amused that somebody says this could cause earthquakes. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Now, the um, there are also concerns that, that people have with uh, groundwater and, and that sort of thing. And um, from from my understanding, typically when you're talking about these well depths versus the water table, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Right here where we're sitting, the water table is about 15 feet down. Mm -hmm. And then you have about three or 400 feet of saturated water sand. Mm -hmm. That's the aquifer, which is a part of the biggest aquifer in North America. The Oglala? Oglala. Yep. It extends from Midland, Texas to the South Dakota border across eight states. Right. There have been a million wells fractured in, uh, well, below the Oglala, right. but over that 
area, the eight states, mm -hmm. where you have the aquifer. Right. And I don't know of any damage to the aquifer. Right. Your fracking, it's from one and a half to two miles below the aquifer. Right. Right. Uh, how in the hell you're going to frack back into the aquifer? I don't know. Right. Well, there's there's no oil or gas there, so they're not really interested in going horizontal at 500 feet underground anyway. They're they're going to get, like you said, a mile or two miles down before they do any horizontal drilling and start doing the fracking. That's right. right? Yeah. Right. Now let's um, let's let's shift gears a little bit and um, talk a little bit about wind energy. Um, you and I spoke earlier. Um, about how um, Ber Berkshire Hathaway's Mid-American Energies mm -hmm. invested a tremendous amount over the past couple of years in, in, in adding to, to their wind. And you were really an, an early proponent of, of wind energy in the United States. Um, if you want to share a little bit more about your vision for wind and how you see that continuing to play out. Well, wind will work, but it's priced off the margin, mm -hmm. the power generated from wind turbines. Right. And the margin is natural gas. Right. And so natural gas at six dollars mm -hmm. uh, you can do wind. Right. But natural gas at four dollars it's very very hard to do. Right. You're gonna have to then subsidize mm -hmm. to make it happen. Yep. If you want to do that you know so be it. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Germans have more coverage of wind turbines in their country is has more than any other country. Why? Because they don't, it's a national security issue mm -hmm. with them. We don't have that same issue. So they subsidize to get wind power because they don't want to be so dependent on Russia for natural gas. Right. They have a history of, with Russia. It goes back to World War II. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. They just don't trust the Russians. Right. So they pay, subsidize, and have wind energy. Does it work? Of course it works, but it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And here we do not have the same dynamics because of the resources that we have. We've got the best wind in the world, mm -hmm. from Sweetwater, Texas, to the Canadian border. That corridor, you can put all the wind in there you want to put in there. I've heard it referred to as the Saudi Arabia of wind energy yes, before. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what you have. Right. It's a huge resource yep. and you can't wear it out. Mm -hmm. It's there continually. It doesn't decline, but we also know the wind doesn't blow every day. Right. So you have to baseload uh, for power generation. You have to baseload with either coal, natural gas, or nuclear. Right. And all of that works, mm -hmm. and we should use all of our resources in America. Right. Well, you know, the, 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 the president has, you know, for his, for his entire administration has used the term um, all, the all of the above. Uh, I know. Um, whether we've necessarily seen execution on that policy or not um, is another story. And um, this brings up another topic that, that you've touched on many times, and that is uh, the, the, the energy policy in the United States or lack thereof. So if, if you'd share your thoughts on that. Well, every country in the world uh, has an energy policy but America. And that's it. Why don't we have an energy policy? If you go back, I can go back to Nixon. Somebody said further back than that. I said probably there. But I can remember Nixon is going to have an energy plan. Every president from Nixon forward mm -hmm. has said elect me and we'll be 
energy independent, but none of them ever gave you an energy plan. The, the president that was closest to a plan was Carter. Right. And he, you remember, he got in the Fuel Use Act, mm -hmm. and he was convinced that America was fast depleting oil and gas reserves and that we were going to have to rely on uh, the Mideast for our oil. And uh, it, I can't say I didn't agree with him. Uh, yeah. I, I thought uh, kind of the same thing. Well, Did, it happened. Yeah, and yeah. We, we peaked on oil production in the United States in 1970. Ten million barrels a day is what we had. And it declined to four and a half. Mm -hmm. We're back up to eight and a half, right. and could get back up to ten. Mm -hmm. So that all happened because you had a very aggressive uh, uh, industry that did an excellent job and found you found that through technology advances that you could fracture the shales and you could drill the horizontal wells and everything else. But yeah. that was our industry in America that developed all that. Mm -hmm. They should get credit for it. How? Just a pat on the back is good enough. I'm not, there's no prizes or anything else for them. But uh, they're almost, uh, you know, uh, criticized or, or whatever when they have done a fantastic job. When I got out of school in 51, that 90% of all the oil found around the world had been found by American geologists. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there were some other companies, foreign companies that were developed uh, over time. But we're back at the point that the advances that are made technically are made by our industry in the United States. Mm -hmm. You don't ever see anything come out of any other foreign company or anything else. It's the United States that develops it. Well, and one thing that's played out over the past several years is, is that a number of, of uh, foreign um, companies have bought interest and in, in agreed to joint ventures with American producers right. in the U.S. And a lot of my understanding is it's primarily to try to develop some of that expertise that, that, that American energy companies it have. It is. And, but, you, you know, the Ukraine-Russian problem that is very recent and we have politicians get up and say, well, we'll, we've got plenty of natural gas. We'll just send it over to Europe. We'll take care of that problem. Well, uh, no, that the first natural gas that will be exported out of the United States will be the Chenier plant at Lake Charles, Louisiana, mm -hmm. and it'll probably, it's already under contract, and, but that'll be the first that'll go out of the United States, which will be early sixteen. Right. And, uh, so 18, 18 months from now, yeah. essentially. Okay, but that you're talking about $2 billion a day, right. in, insignificant on a problem for Europe. Right. And, but Europe, hey, tell them, we'll help you technically. We can help you on the horizontal with the fracking and all. But you have shale, too. Mm -hmm. Europe has shale. Well, you got France says, moratorium, not going to drill anything. Well, okay, hey, that's your problem, fellas. We don't need to try to solve the problem for Europe, they have shale. Develop your own shale. That, that's that's a position that you've that you've stood on for for a number of years. Is as long as the United States is importing um, oil, especially from from countries that that don't really like us very much at all, and what we stand for, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense to export that 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 
commodity. None. You have no energy plan, though. Yeah. yeah. And but uh, you know, here we are. Uh, all at once, we have an abundance. We we have more natural gas than any country in the world, mm -hmm. and we are in good shape for a hundred years on natural gas. We need to decide how this is going to be deployed. Uh, no plan. If you, if you could talk a little bit about the, the the disjointed way our government functions when it comes to energy, uh, thinking of say the the Keystone XL pipeline alone. How many government agencies would, would have an involvement in that? I think that's a good example. Well, the, the energy in America has, uh, there's no office that you can go to and talk to them. You say, well, the Department of Energy. Well, the Department of Ener Energy is, uh, they spend most of their time uh, managing nuclear facilities in the United States. Uh, is it a, you know, is it a government agency that, has a purpose, I'm not sure. If you go back and see the charge for the agency, I believe that the Department of Energy came in existence in 78 mm -hmm. in the Carter administration. Their primary charge was to uh, uh, get off of imported oil. Uh, that, right, yeah, as best you can come up with a plan. I've never seen anything come out of the Department of Energy. But now we come down the Keystone Pipeline look who's going to make the decision on the Keystone Pipeline. State Department. Right. Because it's from Canada to the United States. Mm -hmm. It's an international crossing. Right. And so the State Department has the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they can't make the decision. They've struggled with it. But then if you look, now if we import oil, and we're to, I mean export oil, and we're talking about that because we have a lot of light, sweet, crude and our refineries have been, uh, uh, well, not rebuilt, but they've been, uh, uh, they've gone to a... They're set up to handle the stuff out of the Middle East, right? Exactly. Heavier yeah. crude, mm -hmm. dirtier crude. Venezuelan crude comes in. We uh, process it in the United States. And so we have a lot of light sweet that's available. Now we're talking about exporting that. Well, that decision, I'm told, will be made... Uh, by the Commerce Department. <laughs> so, you know, you say, who, who is it that has a responsibility right. uh, for managing oil and gas uh, imports, exports, reserves, what have you? Mm -hmm. It, you know, kind of uh, goes around the curve. I mean, you have, and so there's no plan is what, where you find yourself. Right, right. And that, that, that doesn't even take into consideration um, our foreign military interests that exist in a lot of ways to protect oil assets for other countries. Well, if you go to Washington and talk to some of the senators, uh, and I say, look, you ought to get on your own resources, and we have an abundance of resources in America. They just need to be, you know, reviewed, looked at, and decide how you're going to manage. But all the heavy-duty trucks should be over to natural gas because, one, it's 20, 20 30 percent cleaner, it's cheaper, it's domestic, it's ours. Right. Yeah, yeah, and they said, no, that's picking winners. Picking winners? Hey, look at the Mideast. Fifth Fleet right. is there, protects the Straits of Hormuz. Fifth Fleet, United States. So you're protecting the, the oil shipped out of there for a cartel. Mm -hmm. OPEC is a cartel. Mm -hmm. 
And so you're here the fifth fleet is protecting a cartel's oil. Seventeen million barrels a day comes through the Straits of Hormuz. How much of that comes to the United States? Ten percent. Right. One point seven million. Where does the rest of the oil go? China, Europe. And I asked them at the Pentagon, I said, gosh, can't we charge them for, uh, you know, protecting the oil to go to uh, China and, and to Europe? Said, yeah, you can, you can charge them. They won't pay you. Right. Said, okay. Right. Why do we do that? Why are we the, the, the nice guy or the stupid guy, I don't know which, uh, to do it? Because if you put the cost of the Fifth Fleet on the oil that comes to us from OPEC. Now, not all OPEC comes from Mideast. Nigeria, mm -hmm. Angola, Venezuela are all OPEC countries. Right. And so, uh, but nonetheless, if you put the cost of Fifth Fleet on there, now we're, we have really expensive oil. Right, right. And that's, that's something that, that I don't know that uh, everyone necessarily considers, uh, but that's, that's a real cost. It is a real cost. Yeah, it's absolutely a real cost. Now, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, natural gas for transportation, and it seems like over the past eight or ten months, there's finally started to be some pretty serious momentum in heavy trucking. Um, we, we've seen some momentum over the past several years in um, some public transit and waste removal and that sort of thing, but it seems that heavy trucking, because of that you know, 25 or 30 billion uh, gallons yeah, of, of diesel, diesel is, yeah. is a pretty significant pretty significant thing. Well, that's about, uh, oh, it's over three million barrels a day yeah. of uh, imported crude. I mean, if you put, not all of it comes from imports, but you know what I mean. Right. But if you did put it to that, I mean, and you took out the diesel used for heavy duty trucks, mm -hmm. you could reduce the four million barrels from OPEC uh, by 75%. One of the, one of the things about making that kind of transition that that people often don't necessarily understand real clearly if you could speak to is the concern that okay if we if we increase the demand for natural gas by shifting a lot of transportation to it it's going to cause the price of natural gas to skyrocket that's not necessarily the case at all is it is skyrocket you, yeah well if you go uh, what is the the superior hydrocarbon it's natural gas. Right. It is cleaner, and it's a better uh, fuel mm -hmm. if you use it in, in all the ways that you can use the natural gas. But it is <clears throat> superior to oil. Okay, now uh, compare them on a BTU basis. So it's 6 to 1. The actual energy content. Yeah, that's right. On a BTU basis, 6 to 1 is what it is. So $100 oil would be $16 natural gas. Right. We have never seen natural gas uh, higher than 13 and that was just for a minute. Right. Okay. Right. So when we didn't think we had any. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it ran up to $13. Now you've been all the way back down to $2. Right. From that point. Today, uh, natural gas is $4.50. Mm-hmm. So you're still one-third of the BTU equivalency, to, and you're not giving any credit for it being cleaner. Right. Okay, now uh, let's look around the world. 
What is the natural gas price in the Mideast? A lot higher than it is here. Fifteen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Japan's the same way. The same way. Right. And it has even been higher. Right. And Europe, uh, a little less, 12, 13. But uh, they, the, the countries there that have the reserves in the Mideast and all, they will index their natural gas to the oil. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So and they move. Yeah, it makes hand sense. Hand. Right. Yeah. Right. And here, it's it's two markets, and mm -hmm. you say, uh, and that is what people have said. If we get it over to uh, transportation fuel, the price will go up. Well, yeah, the price will go up. The price is too cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and it's what where you are. But today, you say, well, it's too cheap. We have all this gas. Let's take advantage of it. You are taking advantage of it. There are businesses moving back to the United States. Uh, the Governor Corbett in Pennsylvania told me a couple of years ago, he said, I have companies that have moved back into Pennsylvania I never thought would come back. Why? Because of cheap energy right. is why they've come back. You have plastics coming back. Mm -hmm. Fertilizers, a huge business in the United States because uh, you're using natural gas for production of fertilizer. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting to see uh, attitudes and all and how this all, all unfolds. But focus on this point. There are 1,850 rigs running, uh, drilling rigs running in the United States today. Mm -hmm. They're broken down this way. 350 of them are on natural gas and 1,500 of them are on oil. And it's because the oil price is $100 a barrel. Right. Okay, so the rigs work where they can make the most money. All makes sense. Mm -hmm. 350. So what's going to happen is uh, as your, uh, your rig count has gone down, your production of natural gas will go down also. Yeah. And yeah. so as it goes down, the price That's goes up. up. Yeah. But in turn, you, you were talking about the, the energy content and the, and the cost, just to kind of put it in some real-world numbers. Um, it works out for every dollar that natural gas moves up or down, it's only about 12 cents per gallon equivalent for, for transportation. That's exactly right. So, you, you, if, for instance, you're $4, say, for natural gas today. Mm -hmm. and uh, So that's about 50 cents a gallon, roughly, is the commodity cost. Yes, so you can double that. And it doesn't move the price that much. No. Right. Right. I think that's a really important point that most people just don't always necessarily understand. Um, if, if, if we could, I, I'd like to go back to uh, something that I think a lot of people still don't necessarily know about your history. Um, as, as a business operator and as an investor, um, especially during the late 70s uh, through the early 90s, um, you were, uh, uh, some people called you a corporate raider. Um, I, I think it's probably a better way to describe you is you were an activist investor before the term even existed. Um, I, I would like to hear your thoughts on, especially in the energy industry, um, the, the, the differences in management today uh, versus the things that you saw in terms of management, how they would operate businesses um, from the view of you know, the best interest of the shareholder, and how, how do you think that's changed? Well, when I started, my, I did the United Shareholders Association, it was August of 86, and that's after I'd been through years of uh, managements that really did 
believe they owned the companies mm -hmm. and did not consider the shareholders. And these, make, these were often managements that had very little personal stake in the, in the business. Oh, in the oh I, I, I looked at, at uh, you know, proxy material and annual reports and everything else, and you'd see where somebody was uh, a director of a company owned 100 shares. And 500 shares was pretty common, but thousands was un very uncommon right. to see them. And when we tried the golf deal in 83, the CEO of the company had been there 35 years, and he owned 23,000 shares. And I said, please, Mr. Lee, where do you invest? It's not in Gulf Oil. You have, you're putting your money someplace else. Oh, and, it, and I knew him well, and it infuriated him. He said, I, I don't like for you to say that. And I said, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Well, he said, it, I, I don't have much money in Gulf Oil. And I said, why not? You're running the company. Does it have a future? Is it a good investment? How can you ask other people to buy golf when you don't buy golf? And I'm sitting here with several hundred million dollars invested in golf. So I am a shareholder that understands what shareholders want. Mm -hmm. They want the price to go up. And the value of Gulf Oil on John S. Harold was $80, $90 a share. And the stock had been in the 30s, low 30s, for 20 years. Yeah. And I, I, when we start, first started buying golf, it was $30. And when the company then, we caused it to happen, I wish we'd have been able to take it over, and I think I could have done. Had, I think I could have done a very good job of developing assets of golf and have have it go to the mar to the market. Right. I think it would be reflected in the market. Mm -hmm. Well, we we weren't big enough to take one. It was a thirteen billion dollar uh, acquisition, and uh, Chevron made the purchase. Right. So you kind of push golf to Chevron. We made a lot of money out of it. We made over $800 million, our, mm -hmm. our group did, in it, which was a lot of money at that point. It was a $13 billion acquisition by Chevron, the largest at that point ever in corporate America. Right. Gosh, they're $13 billion <laughs> once now, you know. Just I mean, about every week you hear yeah, something Yeah, there's like another that. one. Yeah. And they get up $100 billion. Right. You know, a huge situation. We think, I do, that we were a part of that transition that developed mm -hmm. in corporate America. But it was to call me a corporate raider, and they said I was an asset stripper. I was, uh, you know, I was going to take this company and bankrupt it. Really? I'm going to make a $100, 200000000 million investment and bankrupt the company? Doesn't make sense. Okay, look at my record. Did I ever bankrupt anything? No, I never did. Why? But the media picked up on that, right. the PR that was protecting the corporate management, the lawsuits that, that came out of that and everything else. All of that was good for corporate America. Yeah, yeah. And, and often it, it just boiled down to, uh, as you said, managements that weren't particularly focused on what was best for the actual shareholders of the Well, the, these, uh, I'll tell you a story, everybody's dead but me. <laughs> But uh, Fred Hartley was the CEO of Unical, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and Fred was a very difficult personality. I knew him, knew him well. I was on the API uh, executive committee with him, 
for a period of time, and he, he was a pain in the ass to work with. I mean, that's the way you describe him. Nobody would argue with you if you said that about Fred. Uh, uh, Fred uh, uh, ran Unical, and the, the Unical was Union Oil Company in California. They changed the name to Unical. But uh, it was founded by the Doheny family in California. And Bill Doheny was the last of the Mohicans, and he was mm -hmm. on the Unical board. And Bill and I played golf together, were friends, belonged to a club together in California, uh, out at Palm Springs. And uh, he uh, and Bill told me, he said, you know, he said, Fred's very hard to deal with. <coughs> he said, I, last month, he said, I said to Fred in front of the board directors, <coughs> excuse me, that he said, I, uh, uh, we have the lowest dividend of our peer companies. Uh, you know, well now, Doheny is the biggest shareholder on the board. And he said, would we consider raising our dividend? <coughs> and he said, Fred, he said, very hostile, looked at me and he said, God damn, Bill, why in the hell would we want to give a bunch of people we don't even know a lot of money? <laughs> and, and, and I think that was the attitude of a lot of CEOs. Very, very <clears throat> prevalent at that time. So essentially, See, I think oil companies today should give greater dividends. Yeah, yeah. I think if, if one um, oil company that, that I think does a great job, uh, Rex Tillerson at uh, ExxonMobil, I think they do a pretty good job of, of returning value to shareholders through share repurchases and, and a pretty consistent what, dividend. Tell me about how share repurchase helps the price of your stock. Well, <clears> I, th <throat> I think it there, there, there's good share re repurchases and there's bad share repurchases. Um, if, Tell me about that. It's it's just it's just like <coughs> investing in, in in a company yourself. If you if you buy a, a stock that's overvalued, you're you're not making a wise investment. So, if if a company is able to execute a good share repurchase program over time, if that's I guess what it boils down to is you mean if they're buying it cheap. If they're buying it cheap, yeah. Okay, but this second, you're buying it cheap from your shareholders. Right, right. I think you should. Make the price if I, if I look at Exxon or any company mm -hmm. saying it's worth two or three times what it's selling for, so now I'm buying stock back from my shareholders cheap. Right. We'll get the price of it up. So you're not a fan of of share repurchases by companies. Well, why do I want to take advantage of my shareholders and buy the stock back cheap? Right. right. I want to buy if I'm going to buy it back, buy it at market value. Okay. And I just, uh, you're working for the shareholders. Right. You're not trying to figure out how to buy the stock back from them cheap. Right. Take advantage of them because you know more than they do. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know this game. Yeah. But to me, the way you move the price of your stock up, increase your dividend. Right. Uh, Exxon's dividend is uh, it's probably 2.5%. Roughly. Roughly. Okay. 2.5%. It's not much of a yield for a company that makes as much money as they do. That's true. I looked at Exxon. I don't think this is the case today, but several years ago I looked at it, and Exxon had $70 billion EBITDA. Mm -hmm. They had $35 billion uh, CapEx, and they had $7.5 billion dividend. 
which left them $30 billion. A lot of cash. And they did share buyback. Right. Well, to me, why don't you take another $7.5 billion, double your dividend from 2 and a half to 5 And there's still a lot of capital left over after that. But watch what happens to the price of your stock. Yeah. Okay, uh, Exxon has finally worked up to $100 a share. Mm -hmm. as, as an oil man, as an energy guy, which you are, um, you, you've done a tremendous amount when it comes to, uh, you know, some, some environmental causes, and uh, you've done a lot with uh, your property with conservation efforts. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, some people would like to say, if you're an oil man, you can't be an environmentalist. Well, that's, no, you can be an environmentalist. And I have been a good steward of, uh, you know, of the land and mm -hmm. everything else. They said, okay, yeah, you're a ranch, but that's an isolated piece. Are you a good steward every place else? Well, of course I am. I mean, you don't change personalities when you leave your ranch and go someplace else. And I've, you know, I've been uh, a great protector of wildlife. Mm -hmm. Do I hunt? Yes. I, I have more quail than anybody in Texas. And uh, because my land, I've almost 70,000 acres here, yeah. 20,000 I have uh, 400 Angus cows on, and the other 50,000 I haven't had any cattle on it in 20, 25 years. Right. And uh, that has been turned back to wildlife, and consequently I have good quail hunting. But we suffered during the drought that we've just gone through. A normal year for me would be 25,000 birds that I would raise in on your on your land. Yes. Yeah. Twenty five thousand. When I went into the season, uh the first of November, I would have uh due to my taking care of the wildlife, the quail in particular, I'd have twenty five thousand quail. And I'd expect to kill ten percent of those. But when I got around to the nesting season in March, April of the next year, after the season, I'd kill twenty five hundred quail. But just through uh, the way uh, quail uh, live, die, and reproduce, I would go into the nesting season with 6,000 birds is all. Right. Just through the way Mother Nature operates. That's right. Right. And so I was taking 10%, and I was losing to predators, to others. And I'm, I'm not big on trying to control predators. Mm -hmm. I mean, they got to live, too. They're part of the ecosystem. Right. So... I don't encourage them, mm -hmm. but I don't spend much time discouraging them either. Right. I, I think one of the things that you, you've also done is in the, some of the, the oil and um, gas drilling interests that you have um, on your own property at times, you've really challenged those producers that were working on your property to live up to their end of, of their yep. agreements to return the land back to its, its state. The, you're, when you're going to have oil and gas production, <clears throat> there are no question. You've got to bring in drilling rigs. Mm -hmm. Then you end up with producing pads. You end up with tank batteries, the whole thing. And it's, in a way, it's unsightly, but it's uh, the the United States is the only country in the world where the minerals are owned by the landowner. Right. Okay. Not in Canada. Not in Europe. Not in Australia. No place else but the United States are there freehold minerals. So. If you're going to develop the oil and gas, then you're going to have to have take some damage on the surface. Right. But you can minimize that damage. Mm -hmm. And we work very well with the producers on these 
on my properties. I'm one of the producers on my property. I, I have wells on here, part of the production. We're producing about 4,000 barrels of oil a day and 25 million cubic feet of gas, and we have three rigs running on the property right now. And uh, it's, uh, uh, that's a lot of activity that you have. Right. But we've worked with the producers. We're not going to drill in the quail country. So we maneuver around. But you're drilling horizontal wells, so it's not a target vertically drilled. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to move your pad locations where your rigs work right. than it is if you're going to drill ver vertically. Mm -hmm. so, the, uh, so we scoot them over here 300 feet, get them out of the quail country and all. And, we, and they can still access those resources that might be a mile that way, or that's half right. a mile the other exactly. way. You'll go uh, here, we're drilling down 8,400, we start the curve. Mm -hmm. And then we, we drill 5,000 feet is a kind of a normal horizontal, 5,000 feet. But we have, they've gone right under this building, going back north. The, the rig's sitting back south, Yeah. but has gone right under the the improvements here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people would say, oh, my God, I can't stand that. Well, I, I know it's, what you can it, do. It's almost two miles under the earth. If that's, that's right. Happening. Exactly. Yeah, a yeah. lot of bedrock between here and there. Uh, and so it, it really seems that, that in a way, because of uh, the horizontal drilling technology, um, environmentally speaking, um, it, it should be simpler for drillers to be able to access resources and, and with less impact on the on the environment, mm -hmm. a lot of it, ways. You're, exactly, yeah. that is, that's the way it works. Yeah. And uh, but you've seen some places uh, that where you have wells on ten acre spacing, mm -hmm. which is oh thirty miles southwest here at Borger. Those wells were drilled over there in the old Panhandle field back in the thirties, forties, and fifties. Uh, through that period of time, those were drilled on vertical ten acre spacing. Mm -hmm. it, pretty destructive to the right. to the surface, but a lot of oil was produced. Yep, yep. Uh, I, I'd like to close with uh, a little bit of talk about philanthropy. Um, you, you've signed the Giving Pledge, and uh, you've already donated a significant amount of significant amount of money. So if you could talk a little bit about uh, your philanthropy and um, just your view on um, you know your your long term legacy when it comes to the wealth that you have have accumulated, what what, what you'd like to see happen? Well, I wanted to give <clears throat> so I could see the results. And you can't give testamentary gifts and see the results. <laughs> so I, I wanted to see what, what would happen mm -hmm. in the giving. Well, I made a lot of money uh, after I left Mesa in 96. Uh, I ran my net worth up to one point. It was $5 billion dollars. And I was very generous during that period, giving this money away. <clears throat> I was single at the time, and so when it's one person making a decision, it doesn't. It's a little know, simpler. Yeah, if you want to make a decision, it's just you. Right. So you can, and that was, I can still remember the gift to Oklahoma State uh, for the, to start the uh, construction of the new football stadium. It was $165 billion, and it was uh, December of '04 mm -hmm. when I gave that. And that was, I was peaking out on net worth at that time. 
I I got up and then got hit by the 08 deal. But at that point, I had given away during that period. I gave away a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, like this. Not when I die, you're right. going to get it. Right. Okay. Well, when I die, they're going to get it too. They're going to mm-hmm. get it again. And that's the giving pledge that Gates and Buffett put together. Well, half your your estate goes to charity. You, you've already you've already given away a massive amount of, of, of your total net worth. Well, what happened to me? I ran it up to five and got hit in oh eight oh nine, and I lost two. Right. Gave away one, and I've got one left. So actually, I've given away now more than my net worth. More than you have. <laughs> But I'm coming back. You are. I, I, you are. I, listen, I've got stuff going on yep. that I'll get it back. I probably will never get to the five, but I, I can. I think I can get it back to two, maybe three. Well, Boone, I'm not going to count you out. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> no, there have been people counting me out before, and that's that's a mistake. Not a Because I, I, I love to make money, enjoy giving it away, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, I'm and I I love to work. Yeah. I can't even imagine not going to the office and just kind of sitting around uh, that'd be that'd be a sad day for Boone so here recently you've turned 86 86 and you're saying here on camera you're you're not planning to retire no, no. in a box is the way I'll retire <laughs> no I, I really mean that yeah. I, I'll you know there's got to be some place that I'm I'm not as productive as I am now mm-hmm. I understand that I'm in a game I'm going to lose. We all, we all Nobody lose escapes. Game. Yeah. I mean, you're going to die, and but I'm going to enjoy life uh, as long as I can. And life for me is to work, make money, and give it away. Well, you're, you're an inspiration to a lot of people, and uh, your visionary leadership and energy um, is, is definitely going to leave a legacy that, that outlasts uh, all of us. So. Well, I hope so. I hope they remember me 10, 20, 30, 50, maybe 100 years from now. I say, yeah, that old guy, he, he did some unusual things. I hope that the way you're remembered. I think that's going to be the case. Well, Boone, thank you so much. Sure. Appreciate you sitting down with us. Good. Thanks for watching, everybody. Forum. That is our show for today and for the week. As always, you can send us an email, WTMI at fool.com, or you can tweet at us. We are at TMF Financials. We will see you on Monday. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.